So, Parth, what have you been eating? Well, Trent, since you asked, I had some hot ramen. Oh, yeah, you uh, you ordered it from a restaurant, right? Rai Rai Ramen. Was it a pickup or delivery? No, my, my dad ordered it, and then mm-hmm. we as a family went to go pick it up. Wow, that's strange. And then did you just go all that way, a family commute? just to bring it home and eat it there as a team, you think you might as well send one representative just as like an escort to pick up the food because the there was unnecessary overlapping company, you know? I mean, besides for uh, the priceless time you spent together as a Marate clan. Well, it was actually specifically because of that priceless time we spent together that we decided to go as a family. But um, yeah, according to you, that was a waste of time, but... Yeah, yeah, that's what we try. Um, I don't know what the Algaire family does, but um, we try to stick close in the Marate family. Apparently, it's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving every evening at the Marate dinner table. You kids are formal. We love giving thanks. You, yeah, you really enjoy time near one another, which is why you're so close in proximity, and um, you have a mom and a dad. And a brother, right? Generally how it goes, yeah. Well, Parth, I mean, we are both lucky enough to be from, you know, traditional families of four, but some some of the listeners might have, you know, might be only children, or their parents might have been excessive and had three or more kids. So let's just keep those opinions to ourselves, because our parents clearly nailed it. But other people weren't so fortunate. Yeah. And that's why we're both, um, so we're ideal specimens because we were raised under the, uh, <clears throat> the perfect circumstances, <clears throat> really. We're, we, we were by the number children, textbook. Exactly. Well, enough of our, um, our upbringings. Trent, what did you have most recently? I just ate some grocery store sushi, which I don't know if that's a touchy Yummy. subject for some people. But it Why would that be was touchy? Made, I don't know. It's probably only a few rungs in quality above gas station sushi, which people uh, like to judge. <clears throat> um, but so far, no. So far, so good. I accompanied it with um, uh, some steamed edamame. Are your bowel movements still proper? All right. Uh, no, well, that'll be edited out. But. I um, had some steamed edamame from the microwave, and that that's all she wrote. I ate it, and there are leftovers for after we're done recording, so I'm eager to stop talking to you, because there's light at the end of the tunnel. Thy name be Grocery Store Sushi. Well, let's get this train chugging along, then. Cue the intro. Cool. <laughs> Very cool part. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week, we discuss a film and interview a member of that film uh, to talk about their experience working on that movie. Last week, we talked with Mickey Paschal and Jennifer Rudnicki, the Chicago Unit casting directors, 
for our film today, Trial of the Chicago 7. And this week we're just gonna we're gonna be talking about our own thoughts on this movie. We're just gonna have a general discussion. So you'll hear what Parth has to say, and I'll probably say some things too. So it'll be um, unanimous con- con- participation. Does this movie have a synopsis? If so, r- read it aloud. Thank you, Trent. So much for asking. The story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Parth, were you alive in 1968? If so, what were you up to? Not to my knowledge. You, Trent? No, Parth, that's frankly a disrespectful question. My parents were uh, babies, so it's pretty much impossible. Neither of my parents were born. Well, we get it, Parth. You and your young parents deserve each other, but enough bragging. This movie had a budget of $35 million, $11 million of which went towards the cast. It earned a whopping box office uh, sum of $104,000, but that's because, you know, very limited run, and uh, it premiered in September in uh, select theaters, so don't don't get mad. And then... um, Netflix bought it from Paramount for $56 million. Uh, who is the wow. original distribution company? I know, Parth. It's a, a lot of money. Could you have afforded to buy um, the movie for in outright? I could have bought like the first like like sixth of the movie. I could have owned one-sixth of this movie. Parth also informed me that Netflix is worth more than Disney and all of its assets. So that's your surprising fact. For the day. In terms of stock, in terms of stock, and I, I don't know if that's still true. It, it just was true. Well, Parth, it's time that we share the production history. Do you mind? Can you um, quit stalling? Aaron Sorkin, the writer and director, as you know, um, the first he heard of the project was in 2006 when he went to Steven Spielberg's house. Parth, do you know who Steven Spielberg is? He's that guy who made those movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, so apparently Spielberg at this time wanted to direct it, and he, Aaron Sorkin said that he left this meeting not knowing what he wanted, uh, what Spielberg wanted his involvement to be. So then time passes, and now it's 2007. And uh, Spielberg is signed up to be the executive producer and the director, and Sorkin has written the script. And then, oh, even at this point, Sasha Baron, Sasha Baron Cohen uh, is Abby Hoffman, and Spielberg recruited Will Smith for Bobby Seale, and Heath Ledger for Tom Hayden. But then, Parth, the Writers Guild of America went on strike, and that lasted uh. 100... Ah, shucks. And it lasted 100 days. It delayed filming, and the project was suspended. Um, and then... It kind of went into limbo for a while. In 2008, Ben Stiller was considered. Ben Stiller, I did some research because that's part of the job description. And uh, I didn't know this, but he directed most of the movies that he's famous for, like Zoolander, Tropic Thunder, you know, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which, um, you know, fun fact. And part, did you know that? Probably because you're so you're a nerd. Hmm? Yeah, I, I did know that. Although he okay. did not direct the Night of the Museum films. I was going to say, but he probably would have been capable of it. But 
Did you know that there was a? um, Did you know there was a third Night at the Museum movie? Because I didn't know that till recently. I was aware. And Rebel Wilson is in it, and it takes place at a museum in England that I have never heard of. But the first two films are exquisite. I saw both in theaters with my parents. Uh, So the other person in 2008 who was considered was Paul Greengrass, who I'd never heard of, but apparently he directed two of the Bourne movies. That's fine. And um, Captain Phillips. Oh, uh, that's with Tim Honks, um, right? And the Siberian Pirates? Yeah, that's the movie I'm talking about. Okay, in October 2018, Sorkin was announced as the director, and then two months later, it was put on hold due to budgetary concerns because it couldn't find a distributor and then paramount was like all right guys we'll do it no worries um and then we know the rest um wikipedia thinks that seth rogan is in this movie meanwhile he is not um and then principal photography began in september 2019 part did you know this it was shot partly in new jersey on the fairly dickinson university campus i did Um, know that Seems to be the only thing that Fairleigh Dickinson University has going for it. No, no, uh, no direct hatred, but it's not a awesome academic only indirect institution. Hatred. But it was also filmed in Chicago. How timely, as uh, the casting directors informed us. <laughs> oh, it was also filmed uh, in Grant Park in Chicago, which I would imagine was uh, the park in Chicago that they were trying to dramatize. Does that logic track? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. The score was done by the same composer who did Molly's Game, which I haven't seen, but Parth probably has because he's a nerd. Uh, Daniel yeah. Pemberton. Okay. Um, although Sorry. Netflix, we tried to get him for this pop- for this week, and uh, we couldn't. Ah. Uh, although Netflix doesn't publicly release their box office information, uh, this unreliable source called Deadline Hollywood reported that. During its opening weekend, it averaged about 10 people per show at the 100 theaters it was showed in. I don't know if they were in-person theaters or drive-in theaters. So Probably both. I would imagine coronavirus had an effect on the box office performance. Because only stupid people. Those are 10 stupid people per show. Because they're just breathing each other's air in a uh, closed box. Um, a lot of recycling going on there. This movie has a 91 on Rotten Tomatoes, and uh, we usually get our negative reviews from Amazon, from people who have bought the DVDs or Blu-rays of the movies we talk about, but there are no physical media for this movie for people to get upset at yet. So our negative reviews come from Rotten Tomatoes, and we're going to read them now. Parth, um, you read one. Take it away. By Oliver Jones, a top critic. By reshaping this charged moment culled from somewhat recent American history in his own image, Sorkin has made The Trial of the Chicago 7 about something in time. Fuck me! Fuck! Try again. Try again. Make it perfect. By Oliver Jones, a top critic. He gave it a 2 out of 4. By reshaping this charged moment culled from somewhat recent American history in his own image, Sorkin has made the trial of the Chicago 7 about something else entirely. Himself. Dramatic delivery. The second one is by a person named Jeet Here. Um, creative name. 
The centrist filmmaker captures the drama of the 1960s, but tries too hard to make radicals palatable to contemporary liberals. Whew, political. And this last one is by Joshua Rivera. Um, the main problem, despite its likable heroes and clear villains, The Trial of Chicago 7 brings itself... Can, uh, uh, this one is by Joshua Rivera. The quote is, The main problem, despite its likable heroes and clear villains, the trial of the Chicago 7 cannot bring itself to indict the system that turns the wheels of the story. These reviewers are from, they're like writers for real news sources, so they're much more eloquent than our usual gang of misfit internet bloggers. Yeah. So, Parth, uh, take it away. Part, did you wa- did you watch this movie in preparation for the podcast? Have you even seen it? I have seen it actually. I saw it. I liked it. How about you, Trent? Your those are your initial thoughts. Positive. Yeah, I thought response? I thought it was pretty good. It, it's a it's a Parth, much like bigger Aaron improvement Corbin. over. Uh, he's my favorite screenwriter. Um, but he's the only screenwriter any film kid can name, myself included. That's um, well, okay. Well, it's um, a broad generalization. But um, I thought it was a, a huge improvement over Molly's Game, his last directorial debut, and I think that's probably because it was a a it was a script written back in two thousand seven, um, and b he's probably just become better um, in general as a director. Parth, I haven't seen Molly's Game. Can you describe it in twenty words or less? Just to catch me up to speed. Woman runs underground poker ring for rich people, gets caught doing illegal things. Wow, yeah, and that was in only 13 words, so you words to spare. Uh, trial of the Chicago, seven words to spare. Okay, now that is a transition for the history books thank you parth i watched this movie also last night a little late night viewing party um occupancy one yours truly and it was on netflix so um my parents paid for it um indirectly well i mean directly but i my parents pay for this subscription i i understood yeah, yeah, and um, I liked it also. Um, I have enjoyed some of Aaron Sorkin's uh, scripts in films such as Moneyball and The Social Network, but this was the first uh, time I'd seen him direct a movie, and I don't know if uh, how it would compare to his other work because I witnessed it in a vacuum, but this was a good movie that I enjoyed watching. Yeah. I think I mean the highlight is obviously the screenplay. That's the highlight of all Sorkin movies. Um, yeah. So I agree with you. That's why he's one of the only relevant screenwriters alive today. Um but a common criticism of Aaron Sorkin's scripts is that they can get a little self-indulgent and a little um too cute at times and I was listening to a competing podcast recently, and these people competition. Argued, yeah, these people argued that Aaron Sorkin was best suited 
when collaborating with another director to basically like keep him in his place and obviously basically just like curate his great content and then cut out whatever stuff is considered too over the top or too uh at they cut out like the 10th soliloquy and leave it at nine monologues because aaron sorkin is really good at writing those so he tends to do that yeah i agree with that podcast's opinion i think um whoever they may be whoever you know uh do we hate them because they're probably getting more views than less more listens yeah probably but um i'm not gonna say that anyways um i think i think i think sorkin can be genius in terms of his screenwriting but like he needs somebody to rein his tendencies in and the problem with molly's game was that it was filled with his worst tendencies at their like highest extremes and he could not properly edit himself and what he needed most was an editor um i think he's somebody that does better when he does not have complete control over his um projects because if you look at what i consider to be his best works a few good men um uh, the social network steve jobs moneyball those were all collaborations with other writers or directors and um and it shows because he's genius but sometimes genius needs to be reined in um but uh, i think this was a good script and that's why it turned out to be a good movie um not because of his directorial efforts really yes uh like you said few good men aaron sorkin is back in the courtroom so boy the courtroom dramas of the 1990s are back um this this movie's start was um reminded me of you know its beginning Reminded me of uh, *De Five Bloods*, just in the way that historical documentaries are—it's it, kind of part of the, the the formula to start with some, you know, historical footage to say these things happened. And Richard Nixon was the president, and Vietnam was a war that we were involved in. Do you think the Vietnam War was a just cause, Parth, or you want to go on the record and state your opinion? I'm going to go on the record and say that the Vietnam War probably should not have happened. You don't think that the Americans should have gotten involved? You don't think we had a right to be there? No. Okay. So the cast for this movie, um, boy, it's stocked. There were a bunch of actors and actresses um, playing all sorts of people. There was uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the prosecution lawyer not the defense i did mock trial in high school and still it's very hard you go girl there's eddie redmayne uh there is sasha baron cohen um parth you got it uh, oh michael keaton there's the killer from zodiac yeah yeah abdul mateen yeah he's bobby seal right Mm-hmm. there's eddie redmayne did you say him already said him oh uh there's a lot of people in this movie, all right. Let's not get a, let's not go crazy. Yeah, yeah. and Parth, um, the 
directorial aspects. Do you have any opinion on how Lord Sorkin um, conducted himself? Um, much like Molly's game, it's fine. Um, again, the strength of this movie does not lie in its direction. I think he works with some really good editors. It's edited at a really quick, rapid pace, um, which is, I mean, works in conjunction with the screenplay, obviously, but it's not, in terms of the way things are shot, it's very much basic shot, reverse shot. You have your master shot, then you have your singles on each character. Um, there's not much visual flair going on um which is it's fine it's functional it's not bad direction it's just it's just not specifically great direction um it's fine i think yeah if somebody like dave go ahead yeah the, the the cinematography um certainly isn't the strong suit is that what you were getting at that if he partnered with someone with a very distinct visual language that the combination of words and images would be i think some may argue too much because i think a reason why a movie like this functions with like minimalist directing is because there's so much else going on that if the photography was more advanced you might just feel disoriented especially when so many of the scenes are people talking it calls for shot reverse shot well i'm not saying so much so that the direction needed to be like going crazy or that the cinematographer was doing a bad job or something um but if you look at something like the social network or steve jobs both are both are movies that are directed by people that are not aaron sorkin but are kind of polar opposites in terms of the way that they're directed um social network is very mannered it's very david fincher it's um, got it's it's mostly shot reverse shot in terms of how it shoots the dialogue, um, but it's very very carefully considered. Um, every single shot is framed really carefully, um, and then you've got something like Steve Jobs, which is directed by Danny Boyle, who's a much more like um, spontaneous director, and um, both are examples of how the director's visual language does not overtake the writing but helps to add something to the movie um as opposed to um as opposed as opposed to this movie which i felt it was just it was just kind of shot like i don't i i i think it, it is it is perfectly fine a perfectly fine way to shoot a movie um, but it, it wasn't like there, it didn't feel to me like Sorkin had a specific visual vision, um, for how he wanted this to all look. Um, whereas his previous collaborations with other directors, they've, they've been able to not like go insane with the camera, but they've been able to add their own flair. You can look at the social network and very distinctly see that that's a David Fincher movie. Um, and I think... And, and and I think that having that kind of relationship with the director would probably have helped make this uh, um, a really, really great movie. I think it's a great movie, to be clear. I'm, I'm not trying to shit on this movie too much. Yeah, I think um, partly credited to um, the SARS COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, this movie, if there is a uh, Oscars, um, I know it's been 
delayed to April, I think. But I think this movie is going to win. Oh, has it? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, typically, it's in February, January, February. Um, February. February. But now it's in now it's in April to give movies uh, time for more release, and there's a qualification. Uh, uh, adjustment to the best picture category where uh, typically something has to be distributed through theaters at least through a limited run but now the production just needs to show that they had put some plan into action to or at least that they see release it in theaters that they said on paper at one point or another hey uh, we'll probably put this in theaters and then at this point you obviously don't have to follow through but it really widens the net for what can qualify for best picture i think this movie will definitely end on for best picture for best screenplay um is it it was original but it wasn't adapted from anything um yeah, I think it. I think it might be just original screenplay because it's not adapted from a book or something. Um, I think there will be an actor nomination, maybe for Sasha Baron Cohen. There'll probably be a supporting actor nomination because there's so many supporting actors in this movie. Like even even yeah. Eddie Redmayne eh, could arguably be. He's not the lead actor. Or at least one of the two lead roles could be considered a supporting, and then they might be a shoe in, like kind of like brad pitt in once upon a time in hollywood where it's like you you definitely have more of a role than a supporting actor typically would but when leo is in the spotlight you are by by definition a supporting actor i can i can definitely see sasha baron cohen or um eddie redmayne getting nominated editing i could see that i could see that i could see that this is definitely a prestige picture it's um based on real life events it has um it's a courtroom drama it's about important things and people talking and yelling yes uh, which is the sorkin way so Uh, oscar Beatty for sure um i've heard some reviewers be criticized for calling this movie topical in terms of like the police brutality because it was like meant to be released like a decade ago so that's kind of accidental um which i yeah i mean and sorkin himself has said that like none of that was like intentional and that he wishes that it wasn't um but i think it's you'd be you'd have to be blind to not see the correlations yes especially when uh they're showing footage of you know from the event 50 years ago of Police officers are just mercilessly, merciless, mercilessly beating people, and now that's like the same stuff is still happening, which is um, bad, right? I would say so. Yeah, the cops, the cops should stop. I think. Do you agree? I think um, I would not be opposed if they did, but I am not white, so maybe I should keep my mouth shut and stay happy. I am white, so I'm gonna keep yapping my mouth. And there will probably be no consequences. One of something that confused me about the police in this movie. It's a triviality. When, you know how they take off their names and badges whenever they're about to, you know, just like beat up some innocent people? Why take off the badge? I understand. Yeah. Oh, oh, because your badge number. Because then they can uh, report yeah. you. and They don't want to identify you. Yeah. I'm st- I, I thought that they were taking it off. 
Um, the name tag obviously made sense. Um, but I, I, yeah, I thought that they were sort of, it was like putting down the picture of your mom when you're going to like have sex, you know, I know it's an odd comparison, but I, I mean, I, I thought that that was like the relationship here that they're like, Oh, if I'm going to beat up these black kids, my badge has to be in my pocket just because, yeah, people, people talk, you know? But enough about yeah. enough about that. Um, Michael Keaton isn't. What did, What did you think about the? Um... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to talk about Michael Keaton being in this movie for like five minutes, but stealing the show while he was there. Yeah. I I love Michael Keaton. I love me some Keaton. Uh, I and I loved the the courtroom antics. Um, I don't know how true to the source material or to the events this movie is i'm sure that there was some embellishment as is sorkin's way to spice up the past um but from what i understand um a lot of bobby seals dialogue is taken from real life most of the courtroom stuff is all made up that's all just stuff sorkin decided mm -hmm. to write um, the judge is written accurately. He actually was that big of an asshole. Yeah, what an asshole. Yeah, I think that's the strongest word we can use, right? That really, like, put, takes it all into account, right? Y yeah, I think the villains in this movie are very clear. And so are the protagonists. The real only person who's writing the line is Eddie Redmayne because he's respectful of the establishment for a while. And then remember at the end when he um, stands up and serves justice. Yeah. What an eventful conclusion. Well, um, I mean, I, I think um, we can safely go into spoiler territory. I guess. Um, They're found guilty. One of the things that I think I really, really liked about this movie is that it felt like Sorkin was challenging his own politics to a certain extent. Um, a problem I've had with Sorkin is that he has a kind of romanticized view of politics sometimes where both sides are trying to do the right thing. They just want to go about it different ways and that you need to have respect for that system, um, which you can see pretty clearly in things like the West Wing or the newsroom. Um, and that can be frustrating um, because sometimes you have to be anti-establishment because sometimes the establishment is wrong. Um, and it felt to me that um, he, by, by having disagreements not between Democrats and Republicans, but between people on the left, he shows there are different factions within the left and that people disagree on how to solve things on the same side, which I really liked because I don't, think he's really done that before yeah um, and it's a at least not to this it's a much extent. less obvious discussion and it kind of speaks to current political affiliations in i don't know like the different levels of of democrats for example at, at a, you've yeah. got your, your bernie your bust folks and you've got your moderate joe biden supporters riding with biden so baby. there are different levels and yeah, I, I think this movie, I mean, this is kind of a surface-level observation, but 
similar to I don't know how Spike Lee and do the right thing is like you got your Malcolm and your and your and your Martin and how in this movie you have Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne being like elections or ta- or protest so yeah and I think people have sort of I think there's a valid complaint to make with the fact that he kind of rewrites history Abby Hoffman probably be, probably would never have said that he thinks that the institutions of our democracy are a wonderful thing. Um, that's definitely a Sorkin belief that he's put through the words of Abby Hoffman, but I think he's still trying to... Um, I think he's trying to understand Abby Hoffman, uh, which, which I think is good. Uh, he's not trying to paint him as a, you know, hippy-dippy asshole, like, just fucking around, messing shit up. Um, he, por- I, I think he portrays him as somebody that has a real point to make. A review I read of this movie said that Aaron Sorkin's like overarching philosophy is that if you like have good morals and ethics, like everything will be okay. And they said that applied to this movie, everything obviously isn't okay because there's still these in like injustices in the world as this movie depicts despite the goodwill of everyone involved and uh, being completely innocent so that was something i've read that was applicable to this conversation yeah and um i think i think that um people have mixed thoughts on the ending um of it being this kind of hopeful empowering whatever ending despite the fact that they were all found guilt or five out of the seven were found guilty and were sentenced to five years in prison. But they, they only served like a year and then they did. And then they yeah. tried to do the retrial. And then the government was like, Hey, we're not even, we're just going to let you go because we recognize that this was stupid from the first place. I think Aaron Sorkin's whole thing is that win or lose, it doesn't matter. So long as you try to fight the good fight, and I think that's how he portrays the ending. I think the ending is meant to be kind of ironic. It's meant to be like, yeah, they did all this shit. They worked so hard. They did pretty much everything right that they could do right. The system was against them, and they lost, but not without um, trying. And I think that's what he's trying to do, not to say that what ended up happening was actually empowering or good some commentary i really did enjoy um there was a powerful scene it it was when bobby seal was in the jail room and he was called out by the lawyer and eddie redman and they were like hey your friend got killed and he says to eddie redman like oh you you're just doing this as like a fuck you to your to your like yeah, to, to your upright parents. And that's a lot different from a rope on a tree. And I was like, oof. Yeah. I... Th- this... Th- what Well put. Yeah, and I, I would have liked to have seen more of Bobby Seal. Um, I don't want to say that he was necessarily sidelined, but there was definitely not as much as I would have liked, especially given he has a really powerful motivation. And... He's played really, really well by Yahya, and um, I, I, I don't know. I just would have liked to have seen more, more of him because he was really, really charismatic. 
in the bowl. I, I agree with that, and there were some people criticizing Bobby Seale's, um, like, lack, or, or the, the people complaining about the lack of Bobby Seale, but I think, I mean, it, it's true that he got a mistrial and that he was dismissed, so I, I think just his role in the story eventually expired, and that would, that's history's fault. It's not, like, racist of him to, to, to sideline him, because it's just accurate. Yes, although Aaron Sorkin also does have a tendency of sidelining people you know, of color in people his films. Of color. He, his movies generally fall into white men talking about how they it, can make the world great, and you know, it's which is like, damn, does he write those white men some good ass dialogue? But it is white men, um, and it generally is only white men and women and. Uh, people of color are generally tools or side uh, quests in that story. So it'd be nice to see him, um, you know, tackle that a bit more. Yeah, I read something talking about how Aaron Sorkin, uh, all of his stories are just about white men in different professions that he's curious about, but is exploring through the page vicariously, like through these characters of careers he'll never have um but i've heard of aaron sorkin sidelining women another minority group um but i guess he's he's doing it all but yeah he's he's equally um discriminatory we'll say it but uh boy is he good at writing scripts well I, i don't think he's like i mean there's a difference between being um knowing or or like wanting to like sideline people and not necessarily caring whether you are not that either is necessarily good but um i don't think it's that he i don't think it's purposeful either wants to do any of this yeah i i just think that he certainly isn't trying not to Um, i just think when you look at someone's whole filmography this is just a a hindsight observation I, I don't think this is yeah. something he's actively pursuing. We like Aaron Sorkin here on the podcast. Um, another, I just I would just like to see more people of color speaking his words, just because he writes really well, and I think it'd be really it'd be really cool to have more not white, maybe not men, you know, people um, talking the words of a prestige Oscar-winning director. And writer something i did like about this movie very much was the structure and um yes it made perfect sense to me that it showed all of the key players preparing for the day in question and then you jump forward six months and then it's like the trial and then all of the flashbacks to the to the protests are told through the testimony kind of like the social network um, so I think that that format makes perfect sense on setting the stage and then like filling in the gaps as you go. Yes, I agree. If there's one thing Sorkin's good at, generally, if you exclude Molly's game, he's really good at structure, and this is no exception. He loves his courtroom dramas, and it's because he's good at them. And I, like you mentioned earlier, the compliments to all of the cross-cutting, and due to the fact that there are so many different 
like colorful performances uh you don't mind watching any of them and they're switching between them at such a fast rate that it's impossible to get bored because you care about everyone who's there um a fun fact i learned through this movie is that you know how there were the two characters who clearly like were less culpable and they're like they just they don't even know why they were there yeah they're like they just put you here so the jury can let you go and it makes them feel better about convicting everyone else i didn't know that yeah i didn't know that was a thing but it makes sense and it makes me sad but glad glad those two people got off scot-free but too bad they did nothing like everyone else who was there well parth do we want to say assigned ratings trent you go okay we're, we're we're very we're very nice on this show show all of our ratings have been between sixes and 8.5s thus far or excuse me you gave a 10 to memento um this is true for this i'm gonna give it an an eight <laughs> hey i'm gonna give it an eight yeah an eight and do you want to do the same you've already um you've already ousted yeah. yourself I think I gave it a 4.5 on Letterboxd. I think I might drop it to a 4. Um, it just, not because it's like, I think on it and it's worse, but because it just isn't, it's good Sorkin, but it's not, um, you know, he's shown he can do better. But I mean, an 8 out of 10 is nothing to scoff at. No, that's a great film, as we said. Well, enough of that. It's time for the show to conclude. Wait, next week, next week. We have Kevin Bitters, a special effects uh, person that worked on Tenet. He was a pyrotechnician. Explosives, flames. Next week, Tenet. Christopher Nolan, be there. Bye. All right. Well, Bye. Trent, are Bye. you going to go now? Bye. Bye, Parth. Bye. Bye.